Scripture reading this morning is from Luke 18 and 19. Remember this portion of the story of God, as it is written in the book that we love, from Luke chapters 18 and 19, starting in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And from Luke 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, but was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today... I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the word of the Lord. If you'd open your Bibles to Luke 18. And 19, we're introduced to a couple of parables, or, or, or a parable, I should say, and then a couple of real-life adventures that Jesus has with his disciples in this reading today. Luke introduces the parable very specifically so that we are sure to get the point that Jesus is trying to make. In verse 9, Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves 
that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now, we automatically assume that since the main villain in the parable is a Pharisee, that the intended audience is aimed exclusively at the Pharisees. And certainly it includes them, and almost certainly it focuses mainly on them, but the warning is to everyone, including the disciples of Jesus Christ. Even Jesus' closest disciples showed contempt for the very people that Jesus came to save when they rebuked the parents who were bringing their little children to Jesus for his blessing. Verse 17, which reads, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter at all. Might be better translated. One of the uh, commentators I was reading would say, well, this is an ellipsis. This is that, that what Luke, the full version of what Luke was actually trying to say here was, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like they are receiving a child will not enter it at all. Now, what he means by this is, well, look at how Jesus received this child. Jesus received the child openly, placed his hands on him, and blessed each child. He welcomed the parents who were bringing their children. And he's saying, if you don't receive these children, you're not going to be able to receive the kingdom of heaven. The Creator's image, and therefore the Creator's heart, is bound to every single one of the people that he has created. No matter how insignificant, no matter how scarred, no matter how wicked they may seem. God even says in the prophets, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So if we cannot recognize and honor the love of God for all of his creatures, then we sin. And we will have to be mightily changed before we can become citizens of God's kingdom. Now I find this challenging for the same reason that many of you find it challenging. There are some people I just don't care for. And I have a hard time thinking that God should care for them either. It's not that it's not that it's not important what other people do. When we say we're to love all people, when we, when we listen to Jesus say this and we, we try to make sense of it, then we just say, well, maybe the bad things they do aren't that big a deal and then that's not important. And that's just not the case. It's not that what people do doesn't matter to God. The truth is that God does promise over and over again in the Bible, in, in the prophets and again in, in Revelation, to one day restore justice to creation, which means since justice, injustice, is rampant in creation and has been since the beginning of time, that people are going to be judged. And those who refuse to repent will be cut off from the kingdom of heaven and left with the kingdom of death that they have helped create. Meanwhile, we as disciples of Jesus Christ are not permitted to consign anyone to such a fate 
before God makes that judgment. And our own personal spiritual health depends on us understanding what this means. As Jesus reminded us in the last verse of this, today's reading, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is the mission of the Son of Man. That is the mission of his church. It should be the heartthrob of his people. And to underscore his point, Jesus tells this parable about two worshipers. A Pharisee and a tax collector are worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem. Sounds like the beginning of one of those jokes, doesn't it? A Pharisee and a tax collector are worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem, and their prayers reflect the attitude of heart that leaves one of them, the Pharisees, unprepared for the kingdom of heaven, while the other, the tax collector, makes some serious headway towards the gates of the kingdom. The Pharisee starts us off, and he prays, God, I thank you. And at first, it sounds like this is going to be a testimony. And for those of you who were here last week, you heard some terrific testimonies. And I, again, want to thank those of you who did that. That was it was a wonderful day. And at first, it sounds like this, this Pharisee is going to give us a testimony of God's goodness in his life. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Okay, there's a couple things I want to make clear first. First of all, Let's get this part straight. Swindling people, treating others selfishly with no regard to justice, and taking sexual pleasure irresponsibly without any concern for the boundaries set by God's word, all of these are sins that hurt others, that create wickedness, and those who act in this way can expect that they will be judged and condemned by God. The self-righteous attitude of the Pharisees doesn't reduce the seriousness of these crimes against God and his creation in the least, nor is Jesus trying to declare that those, those sins are somehow less sinful than the arrogance that is expressed in this prayer. Sin is sin. It is all a rebellion against God. It will all put us as our own gods on the thrones of our life, and it will consign us to the kingdom of death and not the kingdom of God. Spiritual, Jesus is addressing the spiritual self-righteousness of the Pharisee and how that attitude will keep him out of the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual self-righteousness is a very toxic and very seductive spiritual narcotic that will keep us as far from the gates of heaven as swindling, adultery, and injustice to our fellow man. Even if we are not as honestly expressing our self-righteousness in our prayer as this Pharisee was. 
The Pharisee, who initially sounds, like I said, as if he might be testifying to the saving power of God's mercy, quickly reveals that his testimony does, does less to praise God's saving power and more to congratulate the Pharisee that he has risen above all the other people that surround him. Such attitudes of self-righteousness and spiritual conceit quickly turn into prayers and recommendations that God would put those sinful other people under the control of those whose lives demonstrate the success of righteousness. Righteous people, compared to other people, think that God must somehow regret giving other people freedom to make such bad choices with their lives, so God must intend, as a corrective, that the righteous take responsibility for getting those other people back on track for their own good. And this, of course, is the path that the, the Pharisees demonstrated in spades. It is, of course, the path of spiritual conceit and arrogance. It is a path that led them to crucify and to call for the crucifixion of the very God they sought to worship. The reason that spiritual conceit is so seductive is that it is half true. If our life has been affected, if the disciplines of righteousness have taken root in our life, it blesses our life. And there's no arguing that. Not only does it bless my life, but it, makes, it gives me spiritual currency so that I might be a blessing to other people. And not in the way the Pharisee is talking about. The gospel message insists that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we say we believe that, but we have a hard time really believing that when it comes to things like this. And the church often yields to the temptation to set aside its mission to call all sinners who are just like us to the saving, holy mercy of Jesus Christ and instead to lose itself in crusades of righteousness that it can legislate or impose, and we have lost our way. I wonder if we were to go out into the streets of Grand Marais and say to any stranger, when I say the word evangelical, what name comes to mind? And I wonder how many names we'd have to go through of politicians and celebrity Christians before we finally got to the name of Jesus Christ. Why is the church willing to sacrifice its gospel mission for political reform unless it is because we are mistaken and we believe that our idea of righteousness and the modicum of righteousness that we have been able, we think that we have attained when in fact our faithfulness in the process of our righteousness is measures about like this. 
when in fact the faithfulness of God to make that righteousness take root in our lives would fill this sanctuary. God teaches us what righteousness is. He rebukes us. He corrects us. He directs us. He brings us back into the path of it. And then his spirit gives us the power to be, to, to live out in obedience the righteousness he's called us to. And then we get like the Pharisee. All of a sudden, it's our righteousness. And that's the temptation, the subtle temptation, is all the blessing that that's bringing to our life. And we begin to see, wouldn't it be great if there were more people in Cook County who were like me? We are willing to sacrifice our gospel mission for political or social or moral reform because we believe that our idea of righteousness will preserve our society better than the saving power of Jesus Christ. First, we've got we've to bail out the boat, and then we'll introduce them to Jesus. And it's just, it's, that's not, the boat that we're in, people, is sinking. And the prof, every prophet in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, tells us that it is going to sink. We will not save it. We can preserve it. We can add to the days. And, and we, can, we can enter into bailing out some of the water. But the ship is sinking. The only society that is going to last that we want to be a part of is the kingdom of God. Now, it doesn't have to be a case of either or. God will certainly and has throughout history called individual believers to represent and even lead such crusades of social reform. But the collective church and even the individual believers he calls must always keep an eye, must always remember our peculiar and special mission, which is to call all people to surrender to God's mercy so that they might find admission into the only lasting kingdom of true righteousness, which is the kingdom of God. The righteousness that God reveals to us, his disciples, in his word, and then empowers us to obey through his spirit, that righteousness disciplines our lives and brings blessing to us. And it even gives us an opportunity to be a blessing to others. But our mission must not be to shortcut the process and to make people more like us. Our mission is to call all people to worship the God who would make all of us more like him. This is a spiritual process that cannot be legally mandated or enforced. You cannot legislate spiritual transformation. Which brings us to the second worshiper, the tax collector. The attitude expressed in the tax collector's prayer, and <clears throat> given what happens just one chapter hence, you sometimes wonder, is Jesus, are Jesus' parables part of his knowledge of the hearts of men around him? I wonder, I wonder if he saw Zacchaeus in the temple praying one day. I don't know, that's all conjecture, but the attitude expressed in the tax collector's prayer in this parable is one that will always bring everyone who prays it 
closer to the gates of the kingdom of heaven because it focuses only on God and on his mercy. The, the sinner prayed, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Unlike the Pharisee, there were no other people that entered into this man's prayer. The only people there were God and him, the sinner. When we focus on worshiping God, there is no other people that we compare ourselves to. There is only him and us. Him and a world full of sinners. Even as believers right now, we have much more in common in our everyday lives and attitudes and actions than our, we have much more in common with our unsaved brothers and sisters than we currently have with our Lord and Savior and King. And if you don't want to take my word for it, then read Paul's summary of it in Romans 2, chapter, or Romans 2 verses 1 and following. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The tax collector wanted to be measured and healed by the justice and the mercy of God, not men. Later that day, that same tax collector wanted to give a word of encouragement or blessing to another person that he knew and cared about. Then he would have pointed that person towards the God who loves them both. The tax collector wouldn't have even mentioned himself except to testify of God's mercy. The tax collector wouldn't have even thought to make poor people more like himself because he knew that he was a wretch. He knew that there weren't other people in him and God. There was just sinners and a holy God, and he was one of the sinners. And he pleaded for God's mercy. The tax collector wouldn't have thought to make more people like himself other than pleading that they repent and trust God as he did. And that brings us to the concluding story, the story of the tax collector, Zacchaeus. And this registers in the truth is stranger than fiction category because this is material that sounds like it should be a parable because it's almost impossible to believe this. Zacchaeus, and it's impossible for me to say the name without saying that wee little man, right? <clears throat> almost all want to just sing that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed this way, he looked up to the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, <laughs> I'm going to your house today. Well, you were listening. Now, you were listening when no Sunday school teachers taught you that. That's great. Zacchaeus was saved by the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. Zacchaeus climbed a tree to see over the crowd into the face of Jesus. Up until that very moment, Zacchaeus was exactly the kind of other person steeped in sin and in wickedness 
in moral shortcuts. The kind of person that the Pharisee sneered at. Up until that moment, Zacchaeus had both feet firmly planted in the kingdom of this world with all of its seductions, and that was all there would be to his future. But in that moment, the power of Jesus Christ found its way into Zacchaeus' heart and brought it to fruit-bearing, generous, and genuine repentance. Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus threw a party. And all the while, the self-righteous Pharisees were still grumbling and seething and having nothing to do with the power of heaven's kingdom that was dawning in that tax collector's living room. Jesus was soft on sin. And he didn't understand what a cancer this man was. And if he did understand it, he's deranged. If we were to have an evangelical pride parade this afternoon and march down Broadway with our Bibles singing worship songs, and if the people of Grand Marais were to climb trees to be able to see into our faces and our lives, would they see enough of Jesus in us to bring a dawn of repentance and surrender into their lives? Now, I know from what I heard in the testimonies last Sunday that some of your faces would indeed reveal Jesus Christ. I know from what I saw at Mink Lake in the faces of those five men who were being baptized, five men from the ages of eight to about 70, that what I saw in their faces as they were being baptized, that Jesus is present in them. And I can't understand why any of you didn't, why any of you chose to do something else than to be at Mink Lake to watch what God was doing in the life of these people. Five of our men. I don't understand what else could have been more important. Because God was at work. And God is at work. And that's exactly what needs to happen. Is we need to be radiating the face and the power and the truth of Jesus Christ. The person, not the derivatives of Jesus, not the righteousness that we have been able to put on like a toddler puts on his dad's shoes that barely fit us. But Jesus himself, before we will be allowed into the kingdom of heaven, God must make us repent of any trust in ourselves that we are righteous. And we must certainly be purged of the sin of viewing others with contempt. And I struggle with that as much as any of you. Maybe even more because I'm better at it. I'm better explaining it away and, and 
making an excuse for it. It doesn't mean that we become soft on sin. It means that we become humbly aware of our sinfulness before the holiness of God. And that we somehow undertake to learn by the grace of God and the power of his spirit to love other people as God loves them, even impossible sinners like us. The gospel message that should be our banner, the gospel message that is our duty, is our vision, is the one with which Jesus closes our scripture reading this morning. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's what we are to be about. Let's pray. It's easy to talk about loving other people, Lord. I can't do it. And I can't, certainly can't do it in my own power. And I look forward to the day, Lord God, when you are king, when you're king of my life. And I don't wear your righteousness like a robe, but it gets woven into me. We've got days coming ahead, Lord God, when we get to rethink our vision, when we get to reclaim our role in this community. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give us a vision that joins with you and your ministry to seek and to save those who are lost because there isn't all the time that we think there is. There's only the time that you have given us. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us not to make people righteous like us, but to call people to you, to be a reflection of you to them because it is you and your presence and your power that utterly transforms people and it is the only hope of our society. For I ask this all in Christ's name, amen.